Welcome to the Axiom Podcast, Episode 3. Strategic Consulting, and today we're going to start to talk about time and task management. And a lot of times you might think, well, what does this have to do with strategic planning? And the answer is, it may not have a lot to do with the plan, but it has everything to do with execution. And one of the things that I find when I go into companies is if they've had a bad experience with strategic planning, it's usually the case that they've had a bad experience not with the planning, but with the execution side of it. And people have looked back on those experiences and they say, yeah, we got together and we spent two days or three days putting this plan together. And then we kind of lost momentum two or three weeks into the process of executing on the plan. And then it went on a shelf and we never pulled it out again. And if that's what strategic planning is, we don't want to have any part of it. So What we do when we work with companies is work not only on the planning, but the execution side. And when we first get involved, one of the things that we have to uh, assess is how good we think the company is going to be at execution. And there's always some housekeeping that has to be done before we actually get into strategic planning and and the idea of putting objectives behind strategies to make them happen over a three or four or five year period. And what we're assessing a lot of times is the systems and the processes that are in place, whether they're gonna be up to the task, whether they can measure the kinds of things that we need to measure to see if we're making progress. But above all of that, underpinning all of that is an assessment of whether or not the people who are involved are good enough at time and task management to actually carry out the strategic plan because they have their regular jobs that they need to get done. They have things that they have to uh, continue to maintain, whether that's you know meetings with direct reports every morning or production schedules that they have to make sure go out. And we are la- layering on top of that this expectation that they're also going to do these extra things to make the strategic plan happen. And it's true that in some cases, Part of the execution is modifying that day-to-day stuff, but a lot of times the projects that go into achieving strategic plans and objectives are extra. They're new initiatives, whether it's you know helping the senior management team evaluate uh, another company for, for uh, acquisition or whether it's rewriting scripts for the call center to help with retention. Whatever it might be, we're adding a lot of work, and if you have people who aren't good at time and task management, then we start to lose traction and lose momentum against the uh, strategic plan. And that can be detrimental not just for the plan that quarter, but the entire team's experience around strategic planning. And that's that leads to a bad experience. And pretty soon they just kind of scrap it and go, yeah, this planning stuff is for bigger companies, but we're only you know, seven million or eight million or nine million dollars or four million or three million, whatever the number might be, that's good for those companies that are hundred million dollar publicly traded companies. But we don't have the time or the resources to invest in, in strategic planning, and that's simply not true. The highest performers, the best performers, are always working a plan. So, what we're going to talk about today is this time and task management. 
what does time and task management, what, what are the elements of time and task management? How do we get good at it? And I'm, I'm actually going to kind of dual purpose this podcast because I have a client who has been struggling with time and task management with a particular area of the team. And we're going to, I wouldn't say struggling is the right word. I think looking for best practices is something that companies always do. So in, in an attempt to kind of standardize best practices, we're going to be using some of this content with the team and in the hopes of kind of getting everybody around the same language. And that's what this kind of training can really do. It can give everybody the same language for talking about how they manage time and task uh, stuff in their day-to-day work environment, even though they might be doing it differently in terms of using different tool sets or the, the day-to-day routine of how they manage it is different. But the elements of good time and task management are always the same. So this is kind of a structure for time and task management. Not, And I'm going to give you some specific tools that I use because I think using examples makes things a lot more relevant. And if I tell you how I do certain things, then you'll start to say, oh, well, I have a tool that kind of does that same thing, but maybe I'm not using it as effectively as I should, or maybe I'm not using it as often as Joey's talking about using his tool, so I could tweak that. And that's really the goal here is to give you the structure, and then you can decide what tools, what particular tools you're going to use, how often you're going to use them, so on and so forth. So let's get into the elements of good time and task management. The first thing that you're taught when you when you do any kind of time management seminar, and I, I remember reading some materials that came with Daytimer uh, back in like the early 90s. Um, I got my first Daytimer, and I don't remember where. I think I heard somebody at a seminar one time. Um, it was the first job. I got right out of college uh, working with my dad, or maybe it was just before graduation from college. I think I was at a seminar, and and they talked about Daytimer, and it was you know very popular back then. And these were the kind of pseudo spiral bound uh, little notebooks, and they were about the size of a, a big wallet or checkbook, and they'd have a calendar in it, and then they would also have some places where you could put to do lists. And the calendars came, I think they were every month. You would get a new calendar, and then you got this little plastic box that you would put the you know, when you're finished with one, you'd stick it in the box, and then they had little labels that you could put on the outside of the box that would say, you know, 1993 or 1994. And that's when I first got into, you know, really trying to take control of my calendar. And one of the, the primary tenets that you're taught in any kind of time management 101 is that you have exactly one calendar. Now, this is, you know, back in the you know, analog pencil and paper days. And what they meant by one calendar is that you have to keep all of this stuff in the same place because what would happen is I would have, you know, back in these days, it, it wasn't uncommon to have one of those big desk blotters on your desk. And, you know, the desk blotter had a calendar and the thing was, you know, like three feet wide and two feet tall and it, and it had this huge calendar with these big squares that you could write appointments and stuff in. And you would do that at the office and then you would go home and you'd have another calendar on your refrigerator. And then maybe uh, on the bulletin board in the utility room, you would have the calendar for the babysitter that month or the church calendar or the soccer calendar or the, you know, 
dance calendar, whatever it was that your kids were involved in. And you had all these calendars. And the problem is that you would be at work and a client, you know, your best client would have this, you know, anniversary, 25th anniversary event uh, on a certain weeknight. And you would write that in your desk blotter. And then you would, you know, three weeks later, call home, you know, in the middle of the afternoon and go, oh, by, you know, by the way, I've, I've got this thing tonight. And your wife goes, oh, you, you can't have that thing tonight because we have a dance recital tonight. And it, and you go, well, it's been on my desk calendar here for three weeks. And he goes, well, it's been on the utility room calendar for three weeks too. So the whole idea behind one calendar is that there's one place that you go. And the reason that you want one calendar is that you need to be able to trust the system. If you can't trust the system, then you're going to continue to try to keep the dance calendar and the work calendar in your head. And when you're keeping stuff in your head, then you're not using your head for other things, basically. So this whole idea of one calendar really is about getting a system in place that you can trust day in, day out. You always know what's going on. You know which calendar to go to. You know that if you... If, if the calendar that you're looking at uh, where you want to schedule this future appointment doesn't conflict with anything, then it doesn't conflict with anything. You don't have to worry about, well, you know, I don't have anything in the office, but maybe something's going on at home. And so the, the whole idea of one calendar doesn't mean that you just have one calendar because nowadays, you know, in, in Google Apps, for instance, what I use for a lot of my stuff, you can have you know, 10, 15, 20 calendars. I wouldn't recommend having that many. But the point with one calendar is you need to have a system where you can see every calendar, quote unquote, in your life at once. And you don't have to flip between the two or, in, or they're not maintained in different places. You can get to them all on your phone or you can get to them all on your laptop or you can get to them all on your desktop. And the so the format isn't really that important. The important thing is that you can always look at everything as a whole to avoid conflict. So I spent a lot of time talking about that. It's actually pretty simple. So the first thing is one calendar. What's really important is that if you're doing this electronically, well, let me go back. If you're doing it in paper, then really there can only be one physical calendar. So back in the paper days, it was very easy. One calendar. If you have more than one piece of paper for a month, then that's not good. You, you need to have one calendar. Electronically, you can have as many calendars you, as you want as long as everything syncs up and that it syncs reliably. Uh, I would say that as long as it automatically syncs without you having to do anything, that's reliable. If you got to manually sync up, then it's always going to open up the opportunity for um, gaps or conflicts. So the other thing that I'll say about this whole one calendar thing is that I really think it needs to be available for immediate reference. And the reason that it needs to be available for immediate reference is if you've ever been in charge of running your own calendar, you know how much time can be, I won't say wasted, but it's very inefficient to be um, at a lunch with somebody and, and they go, or, or to meet, let's say before lunch, let's say that you, this is the pre-lunch meeting and you meet somebody at a networking event or a church or something like that and they say, hey, I'd really like to get together with you. And you go, oh, that's great. I'll call you um, Monday, and we'll set something up. Well, now you have to remember to call them on Monday. You, you have to take that time out of your day. 
you have to hope that they're going to be able to take the call, and then you can schedule the meeting. So if you have everything available for immediate reference, and with smartphones, this, this is the way to go, then you just pull it out and you reference it right there. So anybody who's, I would say anybody who's like, uh, well, when I get back to the office, I'll shoot some times and dates, then you need to step up your game and stop living in the past and get this stuff where you can reference it immediately. And I've got friends who are business clients who still like the old-time flip phones, but they have an iPad simply because they can get to their calendar at any time at any place, and it's that important to them. So if you can't do that, step up your game and get to that point. So that's, that's the big kind of first point in time and task management is get to one calendar. If you don't have one calendar, then we're starting from square one. So to get to a system where, and, and this is the whole point, the, the kind of meta point here is that you got to get to a system where you can stick stuff in your calendar and then forget about it. And the way that you'll know whether you've accomplished this or not is if you if you're wondering, you know, do I, you go, oh, well, I got one calendar. Here's the way to really test whether or not you trust the system. If there's ever a time in your day when you literally do not know what's coming up the next morning, then you probably have a good system because you're not holding any of that stuff in your head. You're completely dependent on your system. You trust your system. You're not worried about whether your system has it or doesn't have it. You know it's there. I know it's in my calendar. I'm not worried about what I have tomorrow morning because I know whenever I get ready, I can pull up my calendar and look and find out what's ready tomorrow morning. And if you get really, really good at trusting the system, and I'm not tooting my own horn, but this is literally where I'm at now after 20-some years of doing this, is in the morning, I may forget what I have going on in the afternoon because I'm so wrapped up in what I'm doing in the morning and I'm so totally focused on it. I don't have to commit any mental energy to what's happening in the afternoon. Now, I'm getting a little bit older, uh, so part of that might just be I don't have as much room in my head or I don't remember things as much as I used to. But having it down in a system that I can trust is huge for me. It really kind of frees me up to be in the moment and be focused on what I'm supposed to be doing rather than reserving some mental capacity for what I might have to do later. So let's move on to task capture. So this is kind of the second big rock in time and task management. It's this idea of capturing tasks. And there's one book that I would recommend on this. It's the go-to book. It's kind of the Bible of task management. And it's David Allen's um, Getting Things Done, The Art of Stress-Free Productivity. I can't remember when I read this book. I would guess that it was probably around uh, 2000 uh, because I started a job in 2000 where I remember really trying to or beginning to use this stuff. Um, I don't know when the book was written, if it was written in 2002. You know, maybe I'm a couple years off. But I know that in, in, uh, two, or from 2000 to 2004, I was in this job where I got religious about task management. And it actually may have been a little bit before that because I got a Palm Pilot and I remember putting my to-dos in Palm Pilot and really trying to be focused on the, on the to-do list. But when I read David Allen's book, and we're going to talk about some of the kind of fundamental elements of Allen's book, um, it really opened my, my eyes to the bigger idea of, of task management and, and how to be effective at getting thing, 
things done, not just efficient in terms of checking off the boxes. And effective and efficient is one of those distinctions that I learned from Ron Baker, who's a big pricing guru in the professional services space with law firms and engineering firms and accounting firms. And this idea of why well, can be efficient all day long and just get a lot of stuff done without being effective and getting the right things done is really behind good task management. So task capture is the very first step. So all the stuff in your life needs an inbox. You have to capture the stuff that's constantly flowing at you. And a good inbox, it's easy to identify, and it's something that you reach for without thinking. And, and the other thing about a good inbox is that it has to get cleaned out regularly. Now, go, you know, back, back up 25 years again. And before we had email was such a big part of our daily work life, um, before we had smartphones and before we had drop boxes and, and all of these other ways to get information, you basically had a fax machine and you had a mailbox and, and, a, and a phone. And that was how most of the stuff in your life came to you. And I know in my first job, one of the things that would happen is if like the mail would get opened and then the secretary would bring that mail and stick it in a physical inbox on the corner of my desk. And the other thing that would happen is she would take calls throughout the day for me and I would also get these little pink um, message slips that would also get put in my inbox. And occasionally the fax machine would ring and it would spit out this thermal paper, you know, that would curl up on itself. And that would also go in my inbox. Sometimes they would even run that thermal paper, paper through the Xerox brand copy machine that we had so that uh, it wouldn't fade over time. But those were the three ways that, that I typically got information. And those three ways lent themselves very well to a physical inbox, you know, this kind of leather, uh, leather bound, nice looking box that sat on the corner of my desk. And that stuff would pile up throughout the day. And I got in the habit of going through it very regularly. In fact, I would check that inbox about as often as some people check their email today. And so it wasn't uncommon for me to be going through that box, you know, two, three, four, five, six, seven, sometimes eight times a day. You know, I'd come in from a break or finish the project I was working on, and I would reach over and pull whatever was out and go through it. And one of the things that you were taught uh, about kind of, you know, efficiently managing your life in this time management area is, you know, don't only touch paper once. And now that we live in a much more paperless world, we don't, we don't hear that as often. But back then, I would really, you know, I would pull that stuff out. And if it was a message slip uh, on a pink slip that I need to call somebody back, I wouldn't just stick it back in the box. I would try to pick it up, pick up the phone and call that person. Or if I knew it was going to be a longer call, and I didn't have time to do it that day, I would pull out my day timer and I would schedule some time to call that person the next day as an appointment. And then I would throw the slip away. If it was a fax from somebody and it needed to go in their file for something we were going to do later, I would walk to the filing cabinet and pull the file out and stick it in there. And I would literally clean that box out when I went to it. So the, the, the night, what made that a good inbox for me is number one, it was very easy to identify. I knew exactly what it looked like, I knew exactly where it was, and I knew exactly when to use it. So if I came in from, uh, maybe I came in from a meeting with a client, 
and they gave me a bunch of stuff and I was coming in and I had another appointment that I had to get into, I would take that stuff, walk in the door, put my keys in the drawer, I would take the stuff that I just received from the client and I would stick it in my inbox because that's where it went. I still had to process it. So very easy for me to identify. And the other thing is that it got cleaned out regularly. So those two things really made it a good inbox for me. Now, the things are a little bit more complicated, a lot more complicated today. And we have a lot more inboxes to deal with. So to really understand how many inboxes you need and how many is too much, you have to think about how you receive things that need to get processed. And in my life, it's pretty, pretty straightforward. There's probably five or six ways that people give me stuff. Um, probably the biggest is email. And for a lot of us, that's the case. We get most of our information, things that we have to do through email. If you're in a white-collar job doing consulting work or accounting or law or any of that stuff, a lot of your day-to-day -day tasks are going to come to you through email. The other thing is people hand me things. I go to meetings, and somebody gives me a piece of paper or a spreadsheet or something, and, and they physically hand it to me. The other thing that happens is people tell me things in person. So we're, we're in a meeting and they say, here's something I need you to know. And they describe a situation that they're dealing with or a problem that has to be solved. The other way that I get stuff is people tell me things when I'm, I'm on the phone in my office. So I'll be having a conference call with somebody and they'll be telling me about a problem that needs to be solved. They may tell me, they may have those same kind of conversations, but I'm not in my office. I'm on the road in the car or working remotely or somewhere else, and I'm on my cell phone. And they'll tell me things, and I have to capture them there. And then the final thing, the least uh, volume of new stuff comes into my life through physical mail. So I have a P.O. box, and I go check that. But I only check that maybe two or three times a week. I don't check it every day. So... If those are the major categories, the major ways that people get me stuff, then I have to take that into account when I set up my inboxes. Because again, I want inboxes that are easy to identify, meaning I know exactly when to use them. I know exactly where they are and I know exactly when to use them. So I don't have this limbo of, well, do I put it in this box or do I put it in that box? And the other thing is that it gets cleaned out regularly. So here are, the here are the inboxes that I've set up, and I I'll divide these into two categories, and I, I call these categories atoms and electrons. So atoms are the physical things, and electrons are all the stuff that's not tangible. I can't reach out and touch it, but it's still stuff that comes into my life that I have to deal with. So the, the atoms, you know, what does the inbox look like? Guess what? I still have an old-fashioned inbox sitting on the corner of my desk. And this comes in handy when mail comes to the house or when I get mail um, in my P.O. box. I'll, it'll go into that physical inbox. It'll also come into play when people hand me stuff. Um, so I, I will take that to the inbox as well. So I still have the old-fashioned inbox. The other big inbox that I have that's kind of an interim inbox is the the portfolio bag that I carry. So I have this kind of laptop bag. Sometimes I have a backpack. But I'm, I'm almost always carrying a bag with me somewhere. And when somebody gives me a file or they give me some documents or whatever, it'll go in the bag. And that and I know that that bag has to get cleaned out. Now, sometimes I'll, I'll go straight from the bag. I'll clean the bag out and process the stuff. Sometimes it'll come out of the bag and go to that physical inbox. It kind of depends on 
what I've got going on. But I know that my bag is an inbox, and I know that I have to be going through that sucker on a regular basis to clean it out. It, stuff doesn't stay in there for weeks or months at a time. It needs to be empty pretty much at the end of every day or, or the end of every other day. So those are the two physical inboxes that I have. Those are the only two, my old-fashioned inbox and my bag. I'll tell you the inboxes that some people use that I stay away from. The, number, the first one is pockets. I don't put anything, anything that I need to keep, I don't put in my pockets. I don't put, um, like, sometimes the inbox is like a USB thumb drive somebody would give me. And that would be very easy for me just to stick in a pocket. I don't do it. I stick it in my bag. Even though my bag's this big, bulky thing, and this USB drive is this little, tiny thing that could fit in the watch pocket of my jeans, I don't stick it in my pockets because that's not an inbox for me. I've made a decision. I'm not going to stick stuff in my pockets. The reason I don't is very simple. It'll go through the wash. It'll go to the dry cleaner. Or if I'm wearing a suit jacket and I stick something in, my, in the vest pocket of my suit jacket, it might be, you know, I don't wear suits all that often. It might be two or three weeks before I find that thing. It could be two or three months before I find that thing. So I don't use my pockets. The other inbox I stay away from is car seats. And this is one of the reasons I carry a bag with me. I don't want to leave a meeting and have somebody uh, hand me some stuff that I have to carry, physically carry in my hand. Because when I get in my truck, I'm going to stick that stuff in the passenger seat. And when you have kids, cars become very unpredictable places. Like, so I don't know. That stuff that I stuck in the seat, when my nine-year-old's going to baseball practice and, and is trying to change clothes, that stuff might get knocked over into the side of the console and slip between the seats. Um, it might get, you know, crunched up and unrecognizable. It might, uh, you know, the windows might get rolled down and God forbid something might fly out the window. So my car seats are, you know, are, that's not an inbox for me. And then the last place that's, that I stay away from is my desktop. I never want my desktop to become my inbox. My desktop should be my physical desktop on my desk, not my computer desktop, but it should be a place for the things that I'm working on right now. So those, that's what I stay away from. So that's the physical stuff. What about the intangible stuff? I mean, you know, from the atoms to the electrons now. The, the inboxes that I use, uh, I use a program called OmniFocus to keep track of my projects and tasks. And we're gonna talk about the difference between projects and tasks later, but I use this piece of software and it has a section of it that's called the inbox. So if, um, if I hear about something, if I'm talking to somebody on the phone um, or I think of something when I'm working on a project, oh, I've got to do this other thing, I will I'm, go in and just put it straight into the inbox. Now, that prog what I really like about that application is that it has an iPad and an iPhone app, and so it's very easy for me to have that that uh, electronic inbox with me all the time, and I use it quite frequently. The other place that uh, electronically that I'll capture stuff is I use a, another program called Evernote to take notes of meeting notes, and I use it almost exclusively for meeting notes. Sometimes I use it for research um, aggregation, but I don't use it for a lot of document storage. But it's a great, I found it to be a really, really good program for notes and tracking um, conversations with folks decisions that are made and to-do items. And they have this handy little feature where I think it's um, on a Mac, it's uh, Command-Shift-T, which will create a new little to-do box that can be checked or unchecked. And so when I'm having a conversation with somebody or when I'm summarizing the conversation at the end and, and putting it into my computer, 
sometimes I'll use that control shift T and I'll put the to-do items in there. And that's, that's another way I capture stuff that has to be processed. Um, I will write them down. So I, when I'm at a meeting with somebody um, and we're talking through issues, I've usually got a yellow legal pad with me or a little black moleskin notebook. And I will, um, I'll write down the things that I need and I'll put a little checkbox next to that. And that's how I'll capture it. So those are my, you know, kind of big three inboxes that I use for the intangible stuff. It either goes straight into the software application that I use, one of the, uh, in, into OmniFocus. It goes straight into Evernote, which is the task management application that I use, or it gets written down in, uh, on the paper that I have in front of me. What I stay away from, these, so these are the inboxes that I stay away from as far as inboxes go. I stay away from my email inbox. Now, it's called an inbox, but it's not an inbox for your tasks because think about all the stuff that comes into your life through your email. Most of it you don't have to do anything with. Most of it's just information that needs to be filed away. So um, when we're talking about task management, I don't like keeping things in my email inbox just because I have to do them. I would much rather decide what I have to do with that email and stick that into OmniFocus. And that sounds like um, a distinction without a difference, but when we get into talking about tasks, you'll really start to understand why I like to take that stuff out of the email inbox and put it into another program where I decide what I'm going to do with it. The other thing that I stay away from is paper. Now. I mentioned the Moleskin notebook and the legal pad, and and I'll, I'll kind of get into the tips and tricks here. Most of the paper in my life is temporary, with the exception of the Moleskin notebooks, which I don't use as much as I used to. I mean, I used to fill these things up religiously on a monthly or every other month basis. I would have a new one, but um, when I'm using legal pads, uh, I will I'll write out what I'm, you know, take notes in, in longhand. And then when I'm done with the meeting, I will pull out my phone, snap a picture of that page, and it goes into Evernote. And then I'll tear that page out, and it gets shredded. It gets thrown away uh, because I don't like to, to keep a lot of paper. I like to have one copy of stuff, which kind of goes back to the one calendar aspect. If I've got one copy of those meeting notes, then I know that if I, have to, if I think of something that I need to go back and add to them, I know where to go because there's only one copy. I don't go back and write it longhand and then also have to go in and change a text file on my computer. It's just in one place. So, so here are some, um, so I, I stay away from the email inbox and I, I try to stay away from paper if possible. If I do put it on paper, it's just temporary. It's there until the meeting's done. And then my, one of the things I'm supposed to do every day is get my meeting notes into Evernote so they're electronic. So tips and tricks uh, for task capture. The, or, or as far as, yeah. Okay, so tips and tricks for task capture. Probably the, the biggest one I would say is it, you always have to have something where you can write something down. Now, I, I'm a huge tech kind of geek, gadget freak. I love technology. I, you know, it took me a while to get an iPad. Actually, a good friend of mine, Jamie Dennis, bought me an iPad um, as a favor. He was a client, and he and his wife bought me my first iPad because I, they knew I would never go out and get it for myself, but it's something I really, 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 really wanted, and then it was one of those things, like, within a week of, of having one, I'm like, I should have gone out and spent the money for this a long time ago, because it really did add to my productivity. 
but I will adopt technology just because I like that stuff. It's, it's, it's sexy. It's exciting to me. I like tinkering with it. But one of the things that I found out is that I'm much better at listening with a pen in my hand than I am with a keyboard in front of me. So one of my tips and tricks for task capture uh, has to do with not letting the method get in, what, get in the way of the communication. And I think this is really, really important when you're dealing with people and, and a lot of the effectiveness of what we're going to try to accomplish depends on people, not processes or, or systems, then you have to be able to communicate well. And for me, communicating well means getting the keyboard from between us. So uh, I like to write everything down. I'm a, good, I'm a big note taker. I like to take lots of notes because it helps me process things. But if I take notes with a pen, I find that I'm much more engaged in the conversation. And people are just used to it. Sometimes, you know, even though I'm not intimidated by the technology, sometimes the person that I'm talking to is. And I, this is less so with the iPad. Uh, it's kind of interesting having a, a tablet on your lap is not nearly as, it doesn't put as much distance between you and the, the other person as a laptop screen does. There's something about uh, opening that laptop and erecting that physical barrier that sticks up between the two of you where they can't see your screen and they're always going to be wondering, you know, what's he doing? Is he checking email? Is he logging into Facebook? What, you know, what, is he really paying attention to me? So, for me personally, I just like to write things down. And this is where those moleskin or moleskine or whatever they're called, these little black notebooks, you can get them in bookstores and stationery stores. You, you can order them online. It's the easiest way to do it. And they're kind of expensive, um, but, man, they work well, and they hold up forever. So I use these little notebooks, and I like the pocket size because I can stick them in my back pocket uh, or in a suit jacket pocket, and I can just pull it out when we get into a conversation and start taking notes, and it's very unobtrusive, and, and I just like the way that they feel. They're, it's a nice kind of feeling to have this notebook in your hand. So, um, And I use those where people aren't expecting me to pull out a legal pad. So I do a lot of business lunches, a lot of business breakfasts. I do a lot of um, kind of... Um, prospect calls where we're interviewing people to see if they want to become clients and just trying to get to know each other. And my memory is not good enough to remember everything that we talk about. So I want to jot down notes. I like to ask a lot of questions. Sometimes I'll think about questions while they're talking and I don't want to interrupt them. So I could, if I have something to write on, I can just jot that question down and make sure that I come back to it. And these notebooks are great for that. They're very unobtrusive. People don't even have to know that you're carrying one until you actually pull it out. And it's like, hey, I'm going to take some notes. Um, and it just works better for me than a legal pad. Now, if I'm meeting with a client uh, or it's a kind of a scheduled meeting, more of a formal meeting in a conference room, and there's going to be a desk there and there's a little bit of a, an area to spread out, I like a legal pad. I really are not a, They're not legal size, but the yellow pads that are letter size, um, I really like having that extra real estate on the page. Uh, because I'm, I'm a more of a kind of a visual spatial per person than a linear person. So like I like mind maps better than outlines. If that gives you an idea of how I think. So having that big, um, you know, yellow canvas in front of me, if you will, and a nice fountain pen in my hand really helps me engage in the meeting. And so I like, I like that for the more formal uh, meetings. So 
the first thing is, you know, writing stuff down kind of helps me engage in the conversation. But I really, uh, what I would do before, I've tried this a bunch of different ways. So um, I got into text files for a while. And so I was trying to take everything in text file. And so I, I would have this disconnect because sometimes I would handwrite the notes and then I would have to try to transcribe them. Um, other times I would, um, I would handwrite the notes in my little notebook and then I would dictate into a recorder or dictate into um, Dragon Dictate speech recognition software and, and have it write out the notes in a text file. And there, here's the thing about text files is they all look the same. You know, I know the content in there is different, but, you know, one text file that's 500 words from three feet away looks the same as any other text file that's 500 words from three feet away. But you can show me an image of a legal pad um, uh, uh, notes that I took six months ago and uh, a set that I took three weeks ago, and instantly I can tell you which one's which. And I can remember details about the conversation from the arrangement of the notes or the drawings or the arrows or the diagrams on the page. So this is where Evernote really, really shines. So my workflow for capturing stuff out there in the field and getting it you know, into this inbox world where I can start to manage the tasks is I will take my notes on either the Moleskin notebook or preferably a legal pad. And then if I can at the location where I'm actually taking those notes when I'm done, I will pull out my phone and I'll snap a picture of those notes in the Evernote application. And it makes it very easy if it's two or three or four pages, it's no big deal. I just take four pictures and I hit the checkbox and that creates a new note in Evernote. Now, a few things happen as soon as that's done. Number one, I get an immediate time and date stamp on that note that tells me when it was, um, when that picture was taken. The other thing that happens is it will geotag that location with the address where the note was taken, which is kind of cool because that helps add context. And we're trying to remember, you know, if, if a deal gets complex or somebody's recollection fades, every little piece of information helps. And sim something as simple as being able to pull this note up and go, oh, yeah, remember six months ago we were having lunch at this place and we talked about restructuring everything this way. You know, that can really help to bring people back on the same page and get everybody on the, around the idea. And the third thing that happens is that note becomes available on my iPad, on my laptop, or on my desktop machine. So I have this kind of ubiquitous um, propagation of the document everywhere. And it's much easier for me to work on that document or to kind of key off of that in terms of taking tasks off of it when I got a full-size keyboard and a couple screens to work with, but I don't have to do anything to transfer that over. It just all kind of syncs up through Evernote service. So I, I like Evernote. Other people use different things, but for me, it works really well. And the, the nice thing, too, about Evernote is if I've used... Uh, so I'll, I'll take the picture, and then at some point, I will pull up that note on a machine that has a physical keyboard, and I will kind of highlight what the main points of the meeting were. And so those main points then become searchable because I can do a text search and Evernote pull those things out. I can add to-dos in there with a little checkbox and I can do a search later to see all the un uncompleted to-dos in Evernote. If I need to transfer those over to OmniFocus, 
you know, it's easy to find those to-do items that need to be moved over. And so I just really like Evernote for that use. Having the image there really helps, and then I can go in and type in kind of my main points. The other thing that I've noticed in my workflow since moving to Evernote a few months ago is it frees me up in my note-taking, and it, it helps me be even more engaged in the conversation because I will only take skeleton notes on the paper. If we get to numbers, you know, I, I want specific numbers. I don't, I just put, you know, a couple of hundred thousand dollars. I'll put $225,000 if that's the number that we're talking about at that point in time. Uh, names are very important for me to have, exactly. But um, if we're just talking about, you know, they're concerned about succession, I'll just put succession planning needed. I don't have to write down um, all of the details around that. Now, when I get back to my computer, I might put in, uh, I might type up, we talked extensively about succession planning. This is one of their main concerns and will be a major focus of the engagement going forward. And so that's a kind of a complete thought that when I come back to that note before our next meeting or when I start working on a project, it really gives me some context. And if I want, I can go back to the image and go, oh yeah, the succession planning. I remember they're talking about they've got a will and it's not quite complete or it's very old. I need to call this attorney and see if I'll meet with them. And so then, you know, call the attorney goes into my task list. Um, put together a proposal for doing a succession plan goes into my task list. So that's, you know, that might be a little bit more information than you need. But uh, the other tips and tricks things that, I, that I'll say help me a lot in terms of note-taking and capturing stuff is that action, what I call actionable notation helps. So I've developed this shorthand uh, in my notes that helps me understand when there's something that has to be acted on. So, uh, and this actually came out of when I was doing a lot of text files. I've been doing text files for years and years and years. And I would use the square brackets, the open bracket, and then immediately the close bracket to kind of build this little text or to-do box inside a text file. Uh, and it looks like a to-do box. It's just got a little space middle, missing from the, the middle of the top line and the middle of the bottom line. But um, So that's what I would use for something that I needed to, to do. And then I would use parentheses with no space in the middle for something that I was waiting for, uh, something that I was waiting for from the client, that, that something that they had to do and something I knew I needed to hold them accountable for. When I was keeping handwritten notes in my little notebook or on a legal pad or something like that, um, I could use this exact same notation. I would use a square for something, an empty square for something that I had to do, you know, just a to-do checkbox. And I would use an empty circle for something that they had to do. Now, that notation helped me a lot just to keep, because I could look down a page that had tons and tons of notes in it and see there were exactly two actionable items that had to be taken care of. Um, and that's what I was going to be held accountable to, was completing those two actionable items. When I was keeping text files, it was very easy for me to do a search on my computer to say, hey, look at the client's directory that has all of my client's files and all of my meeting notes in it, and show me every file that has this text string in it, you know, the, the brackets with no, no space, because, you know, face it, you don't usually put brackets with no space in any other kind of document, um, or parentheses with no space in any kind of document. And sometimes it'll pull up you know, some like system files or something, but that was easy to weed out because I'd say, hey, just tell, show me all the, f the files that end with a TXT extension. So that 
notation really helped me highlight the things that I had to do. And that's what we're, that's kind of what we're focusing on here is task management, things we have to do. Now, when I would, um, there were a couple of ways that I would uh, change those annotations when something would happen to that task. So for instance, if it got done, I would go back in between the square brackets or I'd go back in between the parentheses and I'd insert an X. So in my notebook, I would put an X in the square or an X in the circle to indicate that that item had been done. If I took that item, maybe it hadn't been done, but I transferred it over to my main task management system, this OmniFocus system, then I would just put a straight line through the middle of it, a horizontal line through it. And so when I was going through my notebook or I was going through my notes, I would go, oh, I know I transferred this over to OmniFocus. If I want to see whether it's done or not, I, I know I can go over there and and if it says it's done over there, then I know it's done. Uh, maybe it was something that it seemed like a good idea at the time, but when I got back to the office or um, maybe later in the conversation, we decided that didn't need to be done, I would stick an A in the middle of that item. And the A just stood for abandoned. So I put an A in the middle of the box or an A in the middle of the circle, or I would go between the square brackets in my text file and put an A or between the parentheses in my text file and put an A, and that would tell me that it had been abandoned. So that kind of stuff helps. So, you know, if you take notes long enough, everybody develops their own kind of shorthand, their own style uh, for taking notes. And I would say that as long as that style can be adapted to electronic or longhand format, then um, that's great. Just keep it consistent because that'll make your life easier. Again, you want to remove the ambiguity. The same way we have one calendar and we have as few inboxes as possible, you want to have as you know as simple a note-taking style uh, as you can, so that you can go back quickly and pull the information out. So that's that's a lot of stuff on task management, and you can get really, really, really good at getting all of this stuff into a program like OmniFocus or Things or. Uh, I'm not familiar with a lot of the task management software out there, but you know, Outlook has task management. And you can get really good at getting all of this stuff into the system. And that's efficiency, right? But are you getting things done? And maybe you can get stuff, you can get really good at getting stuff into the system. I, what I find is that a lot of people are really good at creating to-do items. They, they're really good at creating work for themselves. But they always seem to kind of be in the same place. They always seem to be kind of dealing with the same struggles, the same challenges. They're, the business never moves or the client list never grows or, you know, whatever, the cash flow never gets better. So the secret sauce, you know, is really kind of stepping back from the list and going, okay, I got all this stuff that I have to do. What do I need to be spending my time on? And this comes, again, this is not my original idea. This kind of comes out of David Allen's book. It's the first place that it really kind of hit home to me. I'm like, oh, that makes so much sense. The secret sauce here is what's called the weekly review. So the weekly review is what helps you pull back and helps you be effective, not just efficient. I mean, you want to be efficient, but if you had to pick between the two, I'd rather be terribly inefficient and very, very effective then be very, very efficient and not effective at all. So the weekly review is the same way that you think 
through your inboxes that you need in your life and you want to be very deliberate about, you know, what are the areas where I capture information? And I need an inbox that will accommodate those different areas. You also need to look at your life and go, where are the spaces that I need to schedule out my review time? How often do I need to review? You know, if you have a lot of control over your schedule, then you may just need to sit down and do a once a week review. But if you have very, very little control over your schedule, you might be finding yourself doing a daily review. Um, so it just depends on what you've got going on in your life and how your, your system is set up. But be deliberate about it uh, so that you can start to build a discipline around this review time. So the things that you need to be deliberate about is how often you're going to sit down and review. Uh, come hell or high water, I'm going to get a review done once a week. When are you going to get that done? So, okay, it's once a week. We know from all these, you know, kind of interesting studies that are done on college campuses and stuff that I don't know what the exact statistics are, but it's like, you know, that they sit down and they ask people to, to, um, to think of a goal, all right? So you got a, one group that thinks of a goal and doesn't write it down and one group that, that thinks of a goal and does write it down. You know, you go, oh, you know, 99, you're 99% more likely or whatever the number is to achieve your goals if you write them down. Oh, okay, that's great. Well, then they do this other study with the people who write goals down, and they say, okay, we want you, we want you to write your goals down. And then they take another group and they say, not only do we want you to write your goals down, we want you to think about what you're going to have to do to achieve those goals, and decide when and where you're going to work on those things. So my goal is to get an A in organic chemistry. Okay. So what do you need to do to get an A in organic chemistry? Well, I, I probably need to study. Well, how much do you need to study? Uh, I think I need to study eight hours a week. Okay, is that one big block of time? or uh, It's probably four two-hour blocks of time that I need to study to get an A in organic chemistry. Okay, four two-hour blocks of time. Let's do this. Pull out your calendar, and where do you have four two-hour blocks of time? You know, I could do it uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Saturday, Sunday. Okay, uh, so let's go ahead. When are you, what time are you going to do it Monday? Uh, so you get the idea. They keep hammering down. And then this is the critical part. They say, where are you going to do that study time? I go, well, um, okay, on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays, I'm going to do it in the library. On Saturdays and Sundays, uh, I'm going to do it at this coffee shop. Okay. The people who will decide when and where they're going to do it, the, the statistics are off the charts. They're much more effective at following through. So with your weekly review, don't just decide that you need to do it once a week. Decide what day of the week you need to do it on and where you're going to do it. Uh, for a long time, I would do these weekly reviews on Sunday nights, and I would do them at the dining room table around 5.30, 6 o'clock on Sunday. It would take me about an hour. And, and my wife would do them with me when she was teaching. It was a very good time for us to both kind of hold each other accountable. And she would sit down and go through her week and plan her week. And I would sit down and go through my week and plan my week. And by 7.30, 8 o'clock, we were done. The kids were going down for bed. And we're like, hey, you know, we feel really good about, you know, it's 8 o'clock. We know what we're doing for the next week. Uh, we can spend an hour and a half or two together just kind of hanging out, watching TV or reading or doing whatever, and it felt good. So that's, that's what you need to get to when you're trying to set up these 
weekly reviews. Now, there's a couple things that that I would say, well, one thing in particular I think you really need to do before you start your weekly review, and that's empty your inbox. If, if you've got this huge inbox overflowing, whether it's electronic or whether it's uh, the physical one in your desk, you need to clean those out before you get into the weekly review. And I would say that you probably should try to separate those. Like don't, don't do your weekly, don't do, don't clean out your inboxes for an hour and then do your weekly review for an hour in the same two hour block of time. Uh, for me, it really helped to kind of clean my inbox out like Saturday morning and then do my weekly review uh, Sunday night. Or if I had cleaned my inbox out like Thursday night, you know, and it was going to take me like 10 minutes to go through and process all the stuff from Friday, then I didn't feel that bad about doing it on Sunday. But if I hadn't cleaned it out all week, I really wasn't in the frame of mind to do a weekly review. And the reason is because we have these two modes that we work in. And we're going to talk about those in a second. But what was happening is when I was cleaning out the inbox, I was kind of in execution mode. And then I was trying to jump right into planning mode. And that doesn't work very well. So and we'll talk about that in just a second. But um, so the, what are the goals of your weekly, weekly review? When you're going through the items in your task list, all that stuff that you've captured from, from notes that say, well, I've got to call the attorney to set up the new will, or I've got to put together the proposal for the succession plan. When you're doing the weekly review, it gives you a chance to say, is this something that I need to do? Um, and that's different from something I want to know. A lot of times stuff lands on our to-do list and it's stuff that we want to know. So it might be, the question might be, um, you know, if you do taxes, it might be, uh, will this couple save more money if they put the, the contribution into a Roth instead of a traditional this year? Well, that, that's something you would like to know. That's not something that you have to do. So you, ha you really have to, when you're going through your weekly review and you see something like that, you go, oh, wait, that's something I want to know. I have to rephrase that into something I want to do. And that's going to become very important later. Um, because something you know, you either know it or you don't. It's not, you can't do anything about that. You either know it or you don't. Education is an action. Research is an action. But wanting to know something isn't an actionable task. So the other thing is when you're talking about is this something I need to do, if you're procrastinating, it might be because there's no defined action. It might be because it's just something you want to know, or it might be because it's just a piece of information sitting there, and you don't really know what to do about it. And that can lead to procrastination. So as you're going through that list, go, how can I rephrase that so that it's something I can do? And then the, other, the last thing I'll say is procrastination can be really productive. Sometimes you can wait long enough on something, and it just doesn't need to be done anymore. So you know, if, if, you, um, you know, if you're supposed to change your air filter, in your air handling unit every three months, and um, and you've got this task that's six months old. Well, you know if if you just changed it last week and this was the old task that's been sitting there for six months, then you can take get rid of that. If um, I'm trying to think of a better example, but uh, let's say that you you needed to change the oil in your car, but you wound up trading the car in, then <laughs> made it somebody else's problem. You know that procrastination kind of maybe worked in your favor. See, procrastination sometimes the stuff it that gets on your to-do list, it isn't really urgent, and it's not really important. It's maybe it's stuff that, yeah, if I get around to it, I will. If not, I won't. And over time, it just becomes something that you, maybe you can't do anymore because the opportunity is not there or just doesn't need to be done. 
the weekly review gives you a chance to decide what's important and what's urgent. And what you really want to be working toward is filling up your calendar for the week. So what are the big, what are the big rocks? What are the things that I need to accomplish this week to be effective that are on my to-do list? And I'm going to take those and I'm going to stick them in my calendar. So we go back to the thing we started with, the one calendar that kind of decides where I'm going to put my attention for the week, where I'm going to spend my time for the week. And we start putting in these things from our to-do list and being intentional. I think when you do the, the weekly review, it really helps me to be in the right frame of mind. I think if you're, you know, if you're relaxed on a Friday afternoon or a Sunday night, that works well for me. Um, it, it helps me to insulate myself from the urgent stuff. If I'm trying to do a weekly review on Wednesday morning when I got a big client meeting on Wednesday afternoon, that's going to be really hard because I'm foc- my mindset is all on the urgent stuff that I have to do for the afternoon. And I have a really hard time pulling back from the, the and getting kind of the bigger picture at, like I would if I'm relaxed on a Friday afternoon or a Sunday night. Um, I think it also helps on the frame of mind side to, to kind of be reflective and to be looking at this stuff in light of your goals for the next year. Is there anything that, that should be on your list that's not? So it's not just what's there. It's like, hey, what's not on this list? What, you know, one of my big goals for the year is to spend more time with my kids. And there's nothing on this list that has me spending more time with my kids. So I'm going to add a to-do item to my list that's, that's um, hey, sit down with Josie and decide uh, what days of the week in the next three weeks I can take one of the boys to breakfast. So you know, being reflective kind of helps you take in the bigger picture about that effectiveness too. And the, the last thing I'll say about state of mind is that you, you really kind of have to be content. Um, if, you, if you're in this frame of mind on a Sunday night and you hate your job and you're about ready to sit down and go through the list of, uh, you know, 80% of the list has to do with your job and you've got to slot that stuff into your calendar, that's going to be really hard. It's going to be a stressful time. So if you you know if you're having a hard time just being content, I'd say skip the weekly review and go for a walk. You know, spend some time with your family, pull out a journal and count your blessings, and and try to get your head around this idea of being content, and then sit down and do your weekly review. Because the whole point of a weekly review is to lead to effectiveness. It's not just about getting the weekly review done so you can be efficient and say, hey, I, you know, I did the weekly review. It's about pulling back and saying, am I doing the right things? Do I have the right things not only on my to-do list, but have I committed enough of my calendar over the next week to those important things to really be effective over the long term and to accomplish the goals I want to accomplish? So that's the weekly review. Um, There's probably two more things I want to talk about. The first is, well, maybe three, projects versus tasks. So tasks... Uh, a task is a next action. Uh, a task is something that I have to do. You know, it's a physical action. You know, call this person, um, open this file, uh, update this spreadsheet, prepare this tax return, uh, complete this engineering drawing. So that's, that is a, a next action. A project is anything that contains one or more tasks. Now, you can kind of drive yourself crazy with this stuff because almost any task can be broken down into at least two more tasks. And then you take those two tasks and divide them into two tasks. So you can get into this, this micro-planning thing, which I think is valuable. But just understand the, di- the, 
the difference between a task and a project. Most people think in terms of projects. They don't think in terms of tasks. And this is why their to-do lists are very daunting and there's a lot of procrastination because the the project that the, the thing that they think that they have to do is um you know paint the nursery for instance uh, okay so paint the nursery that's on my to-do list and so you're going through your to-do list for the week and you, you get to this and you're like paint the nursery you're like holy crap that's gonna take god that's that's like a half a day project um I don't really have a half day Saturday. Uh, I don't really have a half day any of my weeknights. Uh, I'm not going to get that done this week. And, you know, you go, but the problem is paint the nursery is a project. And what you should be looking at is, you know, you're looking at tasks. When you do the weekly review, you're looking at projects, but you're also looking at the tasks underneath those because the tasks are what's going to go on your calendar. Well, if you think about paint the nursery, there's a lot of things that go into paint the nursery. The very first thing might be, Decide what color we're going to paint the nursery. Maybe that's why you're procrastinating, because you don't even know what color you're, you're going to need to go buy. So you need to decide on the color. You need to buy the paint. You need to check before, maybe before you go buy the paint. You need to see if you've got rollers and brushes and paint trays and masking tape and all that stuff. And then you got to go to the store and buy the stuff. And then you have to move the furniture out. And then you have to... You know, but you get the idea. So this one thing that was on your to-do list is actually about 10 different tasks. Well, once you break it into the 10 different tasks, you go, oh, well, I need to sit down with Josie tonight, and we need to decide what color we're going to paint the nursery, or we're going to do that tomorrow night. And then um, on Tuesday night, before I take Andrew to baseball practice, I'm going to go out in the garage, and I'm going to check and see what kind of supplies we have and kind of build my supplies list to go down to the Sherwin-Williams store. And then on Friday afternoon after work, I'm going to go to the Sherwin-Williams store. And then maybe Friday night, I'm going to move all the furniture out. And then Saturday morning, uh, I think painting that room is probably going to take like three hours. And I, I think I can get three hours if I start at 8 o'clock Saturday morning. So all of a sudden, just by going from a project mindset to a task mindset, this stuff starts to become achievable, and you can start to drop it into places on your calendar. Um, so the last thing I'll say is once you get good at understanding the difference between projects and tasks, you can really put some horsepower into your day-to-day -day stuff. And the way this works is I heard a guy named Brian Tracy speak one time. It was back in uh, probably 1997. Uh, 1998, sometime around that time, I went to a conference in Albuquerque, New Mexico for financial planners, and Brian Tracy was there, and he was speaking on time management. And he said something like, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was like, for every 10 minutes you spend in planning, you will save an hour in the execution. And I thought, holy cow, that sounds pretty good. I mean, I, I, at the time, I was keeping timesheets, and I was, I was logging like every six minutes of my day, had to be allocated to a client and, you know, being able to find an extra hour, that was huge. So I started trying to figure out, well, how can I plan? I mean, you know, does it really make sense to plan how I'm going to do this memo or does it make sense to plan how I'm going to do this um, spreadsheet? And it sounds kind of crazy, but man, this stuff works. It is huge. So what the way it works is, and the way it works for me practically, I call it micro planning. So I have this stack of index cards, 
Um, and sometimes it'll just be a blank legal pad on my desk. But let's say I'm about to start a task that's going to take me two hours. I will pull out this index card and I will start thinking about all of the different things that I have to do. And I'll get very, very granular. Like I have to go find this file on my computer and then I have to start this spreadsheet. And the way I'm going to start this spreadsheet is I'm going to set up 15 columns and about 30 rows. And then I'm going to pull up our meeting notes from the last time that we were together. And then I'm going to go to the web and research uh, salary levels for these six positions. And then I'm going to go, um, I'm going to put those salary levels in. I'm going to go look up the short-term interest rates for U.S. Treasuries. So, and, and I put all this stuff, and it's very abbreviated. You know, it's like, you know, I, I abbreviate the heck out of all this stuff. But at the end, for something that's going to take me a couple of hours, I might have 10 different steps that I need to work through. And then I start. And I'm always amazed at how quickly I can move through this stuff. And it just, one of the things that it really does is it builds my confidence because I know that I'm on the right track. I've taken the time to think through what I'm supposed to do and I don't second guess myself. So that's, that's what I call micro planning. And I think that is hugely beneficial in your day-to-day stuff because it gets into our next point, which is planning mode versus execution mode. So there's two different modes that you work in as a knowledge worker. You have a planning mode and an execution mode. The planning mode deals with your projects. So it thinks about, you know, the big things like paint the nursery or land this client or complete this proposal. And it's big picture, which really gets down to effectiveness. It deals with objectives and effectiveness. Am I doing the right things? And then you have execution mode. And execution mode is all about the doing. It's the narrow, you know, pin your ears back, put your head down, and just get the work done. It's all about efficiency and as little wasted time and energy as possible. So your most productive days will be spent executing. Your most effective days will be spent planning. So you have these two modes, planning and execution. And it helps to think about these things in terms of a flywheel. You know, engines, steam engines, um, automotive engines, um, some electrical engines, they'll have a flywheel. And a flywheel is this thing. It's this big, heavy wheel that's meant to get a lot of inertia behind it. And the more inertia it has behind it, the more efficient the engine runs. So it might take a while to spin this flywheel up and get it going. But once it's going, it doesn't take as much energy to keep it going. And you, we work like that. And it doesn't matter which mode we're in, that flywheel is spinning one way for execution and it's spinning the other way for planning. So if I'm planning, it may take a while to get that flywheel spinning. And that's why it's really good to go away and have a two or a three day retreat um, where you actually get into the planning. And when we do strategy work for clients, we want to get that flywheel spinning really, really fast because the bigger the flywheel and the faster we can spin it, the more effective we're going to be. And so it may take two or three days to get the flywheel spinning and get people thinking big picture about the bigger strategies and objectives that are going to drive the company to the next level. And we want to keep it there for as long as we can. But sooner or later, we have to get into execution mode. So we have to wind down. We have to take everybody's focus off the 50,000-foot view and get down to the runway and the day-to-day execution and the things they're going to have to do Monday morning to make this stuff work. And then we want to get the, the, so we slow the flywheel down 
and then we start spinning it the other direction. And we want to keep it spinning in that direction for as long and as quickly as we need to to get the stuff done. So when you start working during the day, it really helps if you can stay in that execution mode. And that's why micro-planning helps to kind of list out the tasks that you're going to have to do. That's why the weekly planning works to decide what you're going to be doing throughout the week so you don't have to take your head up and think about, you know, am I doing the right thing? You just know that you're doing the right thing and you can keep that flywheel spinning on the execution side all week. So the, one of the things that really helps with this is planning the day before. So it's a really good idea. The last thing you do during your work day or before you go to bed, kind of sit down, look at your calendar tomorrow, look at your task list. And if you have, uh, you know, some things you've already committed to, you have appointments on there, those aren't going to change. You might have big projects that you have to deliver and you've got time committed to those, those aren't going to change. But you're also going to have some blocks of time in there that are discretionary that you have to use, you know, highest and best use and get stuff done. Take a look at your task list and say, what should I be doing tomorrow during these times? And then write it down. Ideally, you should have three, four, five, maybe six at the most big things that you want to accomplish tomorrow. Write them down. Get your mind thinking about that execution mode before you go to bed. And you're going to wake up already. That flywheel is already going to be spinning in execution mode. You're already going to have some inertia. And you'll be able to get to work very quickly and be very efficient that day. The, um, when, when you get into uh, those tasks, then micro plan during that day. So you can keep the flywheel spinning on that execution mode. And you don't have to slow down to think, eh, am I doing the right thing? Spend the 10 minutes at the front side, slow, slow the execution wheel down a little bit, do some of your micro planning, and then get right back into execution. Planning the day before is probably one of the biggest productivity hacks that you can do to make a big difference immediately. Sit down the night before and decide what you're going to accomplish the next day. Be realistic. You know, accomplishment and peace of mind are a lot more uh, beneficial to you than self-flagellation. I mean, you can beat yourself up because you had 16 things on your to-do list that you want to get done. You only got six done. In my mind, it's much better to put three things on that list, three really important things, and get all of them done and quit the day at four o'clock feeling really good about what you got accomplished. So that's, you know, the, the other thing that I'll say about all of this, you know, we're really trying to, uh, I'll, I'll go back to this idea of being effective. It's not just about being efficient. We really need to focus on being effective too. And a lot of this comes down to building what I would call integrity within yourself. You have to have these small wins that lead to bigger plans. Once you get comfortable kind of setting goals for yourself and knocking this stuff out of the park on a regular basis, your plans start to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And you can find yourself becoming more and more effective and making a bigger difference and getting to your goals. And pretty soon strategic planning becomes something that you just kind of take for granted. Hey, this is the way we do things. We have a couple times a year when we really get into that, that uh, planning mode and we get that flywheel spinning up. But then in the interims, man, we just go head down and we bang it out. And we don't question ourselves because we know we can get this stuff done. So that's what I've got for you this time. Hope you guys have a great week. And uh, send me your comments, and we'll talk about some of the stuff that you want to talk about. Until then, this is Joey Brannon, and this was the Axiom Podcast.